This is Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George, broadcasting on CFUR 88.7. And I'm your host, Stuart Parker. I have uh, with me uh, on the line uh, Corey Ramsey, uh, one of our city's um, councillors, elected to municipal government last election, and um, suddenly dealing with um, obviously some pretty serious stuff uh, as um, governments uh, attempt to deal with um, uh, the global pandemic. But... um, in the, the tradition of um, being a little bit uh, perhaps petty, I thought I would start the interview not with the serious pandemic questions I have, but to talk a little bit about um, what this show is doing on CFUR, um, because uh, I've been wanting to interview uh, Councillor Ramsey for some time, but she um, does not participate in interviews on the other place, the other community station, CFIS. And so I thought I'd begin by thanking you for coming on the program and asking um, what your deal is with CFIS. Hi, Stuart. Thanks for having me on your on the CFUR station today. Um, you know, there, there was a certain broadcast that aired that I think um, impacted our community in a really big way. And I was asked to go on CFIS specifically to talk about the interview um, that had happened, and I I chose not to. I, I think that when a broadcast like that occurs that impacts our community um, and polarizes it, but also, you know, in my opinion, displayed um, a bit of racism and perhaps some... Um, contributed to a conversation that probably shouldn't have been discussed publicly um, or privately for that matter. You know, I, as a political figure and as a leader in our community, have the ability to say, no, I'm, I don't want to participate in that. And so I did take a stand um, against CFIS. I did let them know that I didn't want to contribute um, to the conversation until they took the broadcast down. Um, which they told me they weren't going to do. So I did let them know that I wasn't going to um, go on the show anymore um, until that happened. Right. So this um, this broadcast uh, where we had a um, uh, local nightclub owner calling for um, in uh, for people to be rounded up, stating that uh, if people were homeless, they no longer had rights. It was obviously upsetting, and I was they're right at ground zero. And um, it was followed by an editorial, uh, radio editorial, in support of this position by uh, the local newspaper editor. And, uh, of course, about a month ago, we saw this come up again with the Citizen's publication of a letter entitled, I Am a Racist. so it seems as though these editorial decisions are not just um, on the community radio station. Uh, I took one approach to the citizen doing that. I got an op-ed piece published in the other Glacier paper, Prince George Matters. 
how um, how should we be dealing with this kind of stuff going forward? Um, should we keep interacting with the citizens? Should we be calling for something in particular? You know, I think that we it's a, it's there's a fine line between freedom of the press, free speech and and hate speech. And I think that you really have to tread that carefully. And as consumers of media, we get to say, no, I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to support. Um, and, and that's really what it comes down to. At the end of the day, you get to say, these are my values. They don't align with your media outlet. So I'm not going to support you anymore. Um, and when we have publications such as the one you're mentioning in, in, the, in the newspaper, that's exactly the type of media that polarizes our community. You know, when I, when I look at media and, it, and its purpose, it's meant to make people aware of issues that are going on. Um, you know, perhaps there is a bigger issue going on, you know, with the renaming of DP or sorry, of Kelly Road. Um, but I just don't know that that was the best way to go about it. So, yeah. Yes, and I mean, it's Prince George, right, has a somewhat undeserved reputation for, for racism. There's a famous speech in the House of Commons by Hetty Fry uh, from the beginning of the century where she talks about how crosses are being burned on lawns in Prince George as we speak. And she had to retract that. But looking, but you know, that the I'm a racist piece ended up being discussed on the floor of the legislature. And um, our local MLA, Shirley Bond, had to come out against it. Um, and so it does seem that there is something distinctive about Prince George in that its media does not odd, sometimes does not behave in mainstream ways. People, newspapers all over the province get letters saying, I am a racist. Radio stations all over the province um, have people wanting to organize pogroms trying to get on the air. But it does seem um, but Prince George keeps making the news because our local media makes very different platforming decisions than other communities. Um, and uh, so it it seems like um, there is um, there is something odd or distinctive going on here, and I wonder how we can address it. As um, certainly we can address it as consumers, and um, we can deal with it through disengagement. Um, I'm I'm certainly a bit befuddled at this point. Are there any other steps you think we can take? Well, you know, I think it is unfair to lump in all of our our media um, to say that they're all contributing to this. You know, I think that there's one perpetrator, um, you know, a, a print paper that is really struggling um, to stay as a print paper. They're transitioning to digital channels. They've reduced their print footprint. I, I, I just think that there are ways to, to engage in conversations with people um, without leading the conversation, which, in my opinion, is what media is supposed to do. You're simply supposed to present the facts. And um, I think that when you publish an article like the I am a racist one, what what are you trying to attempt? What are you trying to achieve? It, it You know that it's simply going to polarize the community. What is the goal? 
Um, so for me, I struggle. I really struggle with um, some of the publications that have come out um, from the newspaper, one in particular. And um, I think that as consumers, like I said, you just have to um, choose um, to be as informed as possible. Make sure that you you know you're not simply looking to social media for answers. That you're you're researching, you're investigating, you're not sharing misinformation. I think that that is what um, you know. I think newspapers in general, you know, they want to sell media, they want to sell ads. Um, their job is to sell papers, and in the digital platform, that translates to reach and impressions and comments, likes and shares. And and unfortunately, comments, likes and shares aren't aren't always accurate, uh, an accurate depiction of what the community thinks or feels. Um, you know, it's 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 challenging for sure. Yeah, so now we're uh, I'm going to we'll make our big left turn in the uh in the interview and move on to um uh first a, a general question. Uh since um we've moved into uh daily updates from the province and the federal government and into uh, a state of emergency in BC, how has this changed your job, your duties as a city councilor? Well, you know, it's, it's, this has become daily life, you know, every single day, um, we're looking at all the issues, we're looking at the news release, you know, I'm tuning in to the Prime Minister's announcements in the morning to Dr. Bonnie Henry in the afternoon, the Prime Minister, you know, midday, additional announcements throughout the day, um, just trying to stay as informed as possible on on the issues as they come up and the solutions that they're presenting. So it is all encompassing and, you know, there's, it's changed in a dramatic way in that, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our work was engaging with the public physically and now because of the physical distancing um, that is in, in play, you know, it's not as engaging with the public and, and I encourage anyone to email me or call me or reach out to me on my social media platforms. But I do recognize that it isn't the same as those face-to-face important conversations. Yeah, so keeping these lines of communication going, that's um, that's become more of a challenge. Um, and uh, so, uh, but you, you also mentioned this relationship with senior government, right? That you're looking for a certain amount of direction and information. Um, what do you make of the um, provincial government uh, appearing to um, retract uh, or remove the emergency powers that municipalities normally have? That Minister Farnworth has said all uh, that the single provincial state of emergency will cover all emergency measures. Um, how does that impact you in terms of our our ability here to make decisions about how to handle uh, COVID? You know, I don't actually think that it impacts our decision because we're still we're still doing the work that we do we're doing before. Um, Prince George didn't have um, didn't declare a local state of emergency. Um, there are communities across the north that that did declare states of emergency, and and you know to have those undone by the province, I can see how that that would feel um, really defeating to have that done. Um, but I think 
you know, the province is trying to send a message and that we need to all be united in our in our work that we're doing to defeat this, you know, to flatten the curve. It's really, really important that we're all um, moving together under one plan. And I think that that's why they've done it. And, you know, if communities are worried um, about people coming into their community, if um, they're worried about the number of ventilators that they have, I think, um, you know, the government, the provincial government is going to be there for us. Um, I, I'm confident in that. And I know that our, you know, mayors across BC are meeting, um, having regular calls with the premier and, you know, they're really um, making sure that they're connected to that higher level of government to make sure that we have what we need. And I'm confident, again, that that um, we're not going to be, you know, left in the wind to deal with this ourselves. Well, um so since 2014, of course, um, there's been an issue that the um, work camps uh, in northern BC um, are not part of the Northern Health uh, funding commitment, that Northern Health's funding is based on local populations and the large camps uh, like Kiewitz in Kinemat um, that have 1,200 workers in them. Um, those workers aren't counted when the province allocates money for um, for hospital beds. And so um, one of the things that um, uh, Doc Curry, who was the uh, Kamloops candidate for the federal NDP, wrote quite a provocative editorial this weekend suggesting that the emergency powers have been stripped because so that municipalities like uh, Terrace or McKenzie can't close um, these camps that have been given an exemption from all of the large crowd rules. Um, do, you, do you put any stock in that interpretation? Um, you know, I, 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 I can't really comment on it because I haven't um, been following that particular issue. Um, I think that it's important to note that the government is really focused on um, COVID-19, on on containing it, uh, making sure that if anyone has symptoms, they are self-isolating. And I'm sure that, you know, those camps do have medical professionals on staff. I'm sure if anyone is um, sick, then they're going to be self-isolating and making sure that they're taken care of. Right, right. But obviously, during the asymptomatic period, feeding people in a 1,200 person dining hall has um, um, is, is something we wouldn't do in any other industry, right? Because every other industry has been told it can't do that. Only construction is allowed to continue um, to operate with, uh, with large crowds. And to an extent, schools, that's the only other exception. But those are crowds of 35 instead of 25, not 1,000 instead of 25. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I would hope that everyone is taking the precautions necessary. That's, um, it's, I mean, it is alarming, and um, I, uh, it's quite a large number of people to be gathering. Um, you know, I think that construction has been deemed an essential service, um, as we saw in Minister Farnworth's announcement on Thursday. So I, I really couldn't comment. I, I just hope that each of those camps are taking best practices in case, um, best practices, putting best practices in place so that their workers are protected. Yeah, and... Um... I guess the other the other question is, uh, would you recommend that in the event their workers get sick, they're flown home for treatment in their community of residence 
or um, do you think we've got the we've got the capacity here? You know, I'm not a health professional, so I couldn't say. Um, I, I do know that they are keeping track of the number of beds available. Um, and I, I trust that Dr. Bonnie Henry um, is in contact with uh, those, you know, active cases and, and really aware of what's going on. So I think that if it, if an issue were to emerge, that she would be on it. Now, um, you mentioned Bonnie Henry. I found it really fascinating the way she's developed kind of a public following. I, I logged on to Twitter the other day, and there were these photographs of her shoes that people had been taking over a, a several days. And um, uh, I, I found this, this quite interesting, that people uh, were talking about her as an inspiring uh, leader in all this. What do you make of the uh, the rise of, of Bonnie Henry as a public figure and why certain people are taking to her so well? You know, I think that she has a, a, a lot of grace and poise coming into this. Um, she remains calm under pressure and is really great at um, articulating um, pertinent information and keeping the public informed. And, you know, I, I studied cult literature in in university um, at UNBC during my <laughs> English degree. And I can see why she's starting to develop a cult following in that she's, you know, she's really great to listen to. She's, too, you know, you can tune in every single day. She's sharing the information that people want. And, you know, maybe cult isn't the best word to use, but, um, you know, I, I'm a Dr. Bonnie follower and I, I really appreciate um everything that she brings to her daily releases. And, and it is actually quite different than other jurisdictions because in other places, it's very much the elected politicians who are being, uh, who are front and center. And there's that sort of iconic image of Adrian Dix standing like two and a half feet behind and just to the left of her that sort of presents this kind of different uh, different approach. Do you see that more generally with this government, that it is leaning harder on expertise and the permanent civil service than, uh, let's say, Ontario or Quebec? You know, I think something to note is that Dr. Bonnie is one of the leading professionals in her industry. And, you know, I think that we have that benefit more so than any other province across Canada. So I can see why um, Minister Dix is is having her at the forefront because she is this is her profession. This is what she's good at. And I think that, you know, as a politician, I'm asked constantly, well, what do you think? And, you know, I've been hesitant to speak publicly about COVID-19 because I'm not a health professional. I can I can repeat the information that health professionals are saying is important, but at the end of the day, we need to make sure we're listening to the health professionals. Be, um, we're going to the BC Center for Disease Control for our main source of information. Right. So, um, uh, so to just just cook this down to the the really um, to the really local level, um, a concern that um, that I've had. And I, I don't know whether this is planning that you guys have gotten into yet, but. Obviously, COVID is a severe respiratory illness, and um, uh, wildfire season is two months away. Um, uh, there's obviously going to be a way in which, if the fires are bad, as they were two, um, as they were two years ago, that this is going to interact synergistically with um, with COVID. Is there um, 
for communities like ours that um, really suffered during the wildfires, is there a conversation going about how to handle the possible intersection of these health crises? Yeah, I think that we're really lucky to have Adam Davey on staff. He, um, you know, is uh, running our emergency operations center right now. We're already seeing wildfire season start in Lytton, and and I believe they are having those conversations already. We need to definitely be prepared for that, and I'm confident that the um, the city leadership is um, going to make sure that all conversations are had and we're prepared as much as possible. Yeah, well, that's um, that's much appreciated. I'm really glad to hear that 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 conversation is already happening as as the fire starts spooling up in Lytton. That sort of that bit of context is um, is reassuring. If people want to, um, if members of the public obviously they have questions, uh, they might also have um, have input. Who uh, is it best for people to go through their um, through the counselor they feel closest to, like yourself, or is there a sort of front end to city hall um, that people should talk to uh, about COVID issues? Yeah, I you know our counselors are always here and always available. Um, you know, if you're comfortable reaching out, um, we also have three one one at the city, um, and the city's um, social media channels are are sharing COVID information. Um, the website is a really great place um, for information as well. Um, I I would encourage everyone to um, you know go through three one one if they have a comment or a question, um, just because you know when we get questions um, we forward them to three one one to get them um, put in the queue. So going to your counselor doesn't jump the queue, which some people may believe. You know I, I think it's important to note that it is a fair fair system. So you know, going through 311 is really the best way. Um, one of the things that I, I personally do is I sign up for alerts from the city. Um, and so I would encourage everyone to sign up for alerts so that you're getting um, a notification in your email um, as soon as uh, there's more information available. Well, that uh, that's probably a good note to go out on. I really want to thank you for taking the time uh, and uh, and being on the show. Um, I I'm very hopeful that you'll be uh, back again, and we'll be talking about something other than the show's move to a new station and the provincial emergency, perhaps uh, later in the spring, as um, as we get used to a modus vivendi, uh, we can we may start hearing back about the downtown committee and all the other stuff that's uh, in the hopper. Yeah, there's still important work that is being done. Um, you know, our committees aren't meeting right now, but um, I think. Uh, you know, it's some of the downtown issues right now. People have had a lot of questions about um, how our vulnerable homeless senior populations are going to be dealing with COVID-19. Um, and, uh, you know, we're meet- our EOC is meeting daily um, talking about this issue. BC Housing's on board. Uh, Malachi Tohill is um, with them. And, and really, he's 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 his hands are are clean, but they're dirty. They're getting to work. So. All right. Well, on that uh, encouraging note, thanks again for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me, Stuart. And I will mention thank you for social distancing over Skype. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Any, uh, any complaints about sound quality can be directed to the social distancing protocol. So thanks again. <laughs> thank
I have with me uh, Sean Holman, uh, a professor of uh, communications and journalism, Mount Royal University in Calgary. Uh, Sean was a um, guest on uh, my previous show in the other place, and uh, very glad to have him back for the first show in the new place. So thanks very much, Sean. Thanks so very much for having me, Stuart. I love the use of uh, the the other place. It sounds uh, it sounds very the good place and the bad place. Yes, uh, well, it's the official term for the Canadian Senate. There you go. Yeah, you're not allowed to say the Senate if you're on Absolutely. the floor of the House of Commons. You have to say the other place. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a really stupid, weird procedural thing. So, uh, like many uh, things, like many things related to parliamentary decorum. Yes. Yeah, so now, uh, since uh, our last conversation, there was a, a little bit of a, a conflict at my last station about which uh, they interviewed you, and um, I wanted to uh, to just briefly revisit that before we move on to the more pressing question of uh, media and the coronavirus. So. Um, Last, uh, so I didn't get to tune in and and hear your interview, but essentially the question that was put to you was, is it uh, the duty of a newspaper editor to publish declarations of racism if he believes racists are a significant part of his community of interest? Is that sort of uh, the ballpark that they were talking about? Well, I think where we had sort of a difference of opinion is on the issue of whether or not journalism, newspapers, radio stations, television stations, websites are common carriers. In other words, um, do newspapers, television stations and radio stations have an obligation to carry every opinion that comes in? Um, or uh, is there uh, another obligation that we as journalists should be concerned about? Um, I believe that news media outlets are not common carriers. I believe that we make decisions all the time about what information to include and what information to exclude whether or not it's in terms of our stories or in terms of choosing who to put on the air or what op-eds to run. Um, and on that score, um, I felt a, a letter that was published in the Prince George Citizen um, that included some statements which a reasonable person might think of as being racist um, probably shouldn't have been published because it goes against what we are trying to do as journalists and what we're trying to do as journalists is foster democracy. We're trying to create the kind of rational and empathetic conversations that are fundamental to the correct functioning of our system of government. Um, and it's on that score that I think, uh, despite the best intentions of uh, the Prince George citizen, that newspaper failed. Right. So um, now, what is a common carrier? What's an example of a common carrier we'd encounter in life? A telephone would be a really good example of a common carrier, right? A telephone system uh, is something where 
you should have the right to use that regardless of what you're using it for, um, for the most part. Um, so that would be an example of a common carrier, but we're not that. News media has never been that. We don't just, we make choices all the time. Um, and I think to sort of throw our hands up and say, well, we're just reflecting the community or we're just printing what other people are saying. That's an abrogation of actually our journalistic responsibility. Well, and it also is impossible at scale. Oh, yeah, there's absolutely. Simply, yeah. There's simply no way to put all the full breadth of a community's opinions in a newspaper unless the newspaper is sort of old-fashioned telephone book length. That's right. And we also have to be concerned in this particular era um, that we find ourselves in um, that we do not feed into um, the beliefs of individuals who might compromise the kind of free and open society that we cherish. You know, one of the reasons why liberal democracy and and kind of free open society we want survives um, is because people believe that opinions that are contrary um, to a free and open society are are not appropriate. So therefore, even if they hold those opinions, um, they don't speak them. And that has the effect of suppressing those beliefs. But as soon as you start to let other people know that there are people like them around and that it's okay to give voice to these kinds of views, um, that breaks that spiral of silence. Um, so it's very dangerous. Um, and the media really needs to think very carefully um, about what their role is in creating the kind of post-truth, xenophobic, nativist, bigoted environment um, that we increasingly find ourselves living in. Yeah. So now, now that's um, uh, that's a major that's a major concern, and of course, it's one of the reasons that uh, my show moved stations um, because not because I wouldn't be on a station with the editor of the newspaper, but because interestingly. Our station's manager doesn't believe that the station is a common carrier either and that no host uh, on the station is permitted to criticize editorial decisions by the local paper. So that sort of became an absurd thing. And off I've come here. Now, right now, though, we're dealing with a very different spiral of silence that I'm beginning to witness more and more in my social media. And it has to do with... um, how we treat the statements of senior civil servants um, Mm -hmm. and government ministers during uh, this global pandemic. Uh, And so there's, um, I mean, I think that there are going to be plenty of papers to write about BC's chief medical health officer, Bonnie Henry, and the way that she has been received by the public in this. Uh, some will have to do with, um, well, a variety of things. But interestingly, she's developed a real fan base. And uh, there are people who are excited to see her broadcasts every day. They feel reassured by her broadcasts. And in fact, there's an ongoing thread on uh, Twitter about um, her footwear choices uh, mm. for the daily press conferences and people's considerable esteem for those choices. 
And um, but I'm noticing that we're not just seeing admiration. We're seeing more and more authority figures in our society, like trade union leaders and government ministers, suggesting that it's not appropriate to question whether Dr. Henry's decisions um, are doing the job of protecting public health. Are, is this a phenomenon we're seeing elsewhere? Um, is, this a, is this a common thing? That's a very good question. Um, so there's a, a very interesting um, survey that has been done for a while, poll that has been done for a while internationally called the World Values Survey. And it is quite literally what it describes itself as being. It is a survey of the values that people hold across the world on a country-by-country basis. Um, And a lot of the questions that that particular survey focuses on um, often surround uh, beliefs um, in certain kinds of politics. How do you feel about democracy? How do you feel about other forms of government? How do you feel about your fellow neighbors and citizens? All kinds of really interesting questions. And one of the really interesting things that has always uh, intrigued me about uh, the Canadian results for the World Value Survey, and I don't have the specific numbers off the top of my head, is that Canadians have always shown um, a strong favoritism um, towards a particular form of of undemocratic government called technocracy. Um, The idea that experts should be the ones who are in charge. And I have a suspicion um, that as time goes on, um, we are going to see that number increase. We are entering a time of profound uncertainty and uncontrollability um, as a result of environmental collapse um, and as a result of the collapse of democratic and economic norms. And that really puts into the hazard the way in which our society is traditionally thought to have been governed from a normative standpoint. The idea that with information we can make rational decisions uh, that provide control over public and private institutions. That's really gone by the wayside. And so if you can no longer feel that you're able to get certainty by voting, if you can no longer feel that you're able to get certainty by the kinds of consumer decisions you make, if you feel that you can no longer get control via those two things, then other forms of control become that much more attractive. And I I think what we're going to see um, is not just the rise of authoritarian governments as a result, but perhaps the rise of other forms of government, and that could very well include a technocracy, um, which we haven't really seen before um, in a lot of ways. Well, I mean, it's it. I mean, during the 1970s and 1980s, uh, the technocratic control of our federal government um, 
was a major political issue, right? This belief that um, that Pierre Trudeau's ministers had no real power and that power had That's been transferred right. to the technocrats. Curiously, and uh, and and interestingly enough, at at that particular point in time, you had government being described by its critics as almost a kind of church, right? Um, in which the bureaucrats were the priests, right? These great, you know, steel and glass cathedrals, right? They're being built in in all these new modernist styles, you know, as these living monuments to this new state. Um, that was being driven by, um, as you say, um, uh, um, you know, much more technocratic approach. But I think we might be seeing something even newer here, right? Oh yes, um, I wouldn't yeah, suggest that this is just a, a repeat because, no, these uh, Trudeau's mandarins uh, yes. um, were part of a consensus government, a mandarinate, right. uh, yeah. and um, this is. And what we're seeing here is much more localized authority based on expertise. Yes. So um, uh, one of the, the assertions that's being made, for instance, is a number of key physicians in British Columbia, in particular the heads of hospitals, have written to Dr. Henry stating that they believe she is mishandling the pandemic. So you had the chief of medicine at Royal Columbian Hospital, for instance, say, this is being mishandled. Please, please listen to us. And the response uh, from Dr. Henry's defenders, um, and I, I'm thinking of, um, you know, sort of labor aristocrats, government ministers, people like that, is to say, Bonnie Henry has a monopoly on public health knowledge in the province that only one person can know at once. And so there's this idea then that there's only one legitimate expert voice that uh, does not have to be in dialogue with other expert voices and would in fact be diluted if it were. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too because of course this comes at a time when the whole entire idea of expertise um, has been thrown to the hazard. Qualifications um, have no longer become a signifier. Um, that you are getting the truth from an individual. And we certainly see that, for example, in the climate denial movement. You see all sorts of individuals claim to have all these various different credentials um, saying untruths uh, about uh, the state of our environment. So it's it's very interesting, but I think it, it also speaks to this desire, right, for someone somewhere in society um, to be providing control and certainty. And I think, you know, for example, that also explains why Donald Trump's poll numbers continue to be where they're at. Um, this, this, primal desire that we have for control and certainty is going to be filled. And if it isn't filled by democratic decision-making, it is going to be filled by other forms of government. And we could even, I think, think about the possibility uh, down the road that maybe we will um, one day think to ourselves the entire human project, um, the idea of governance by humanity in any form, 
um, is at a loss. And perhaps we'll see the rise of new forms of government that are based on uh, machine learning. Um, that, that could very well be the case. It, it could, because I think that one of the things we often miss, right, when there's a major conflict, a binary conflict, what we miss are all the points of consensus necessary for the binary conflict to happen, yeah. right? So the United States and Soviet Union could only compete with each other during the Cold War because there was an agreement to take the colonies of the old empires, grant them nominal independence, and then fight over the spoils. Mm -hmm. So you needed to agree on what you were fighting over in order to have the fight. And I can't help but notice that both what we might call progressive technocratic social movements and um, authoritarian populist social movements share an opposition to deliberation as a source of truth. Yeah. That the kind of world you're talking about in terms of the duties of the news media, the things that um, the news media is tied to, the reason it's necessary to get people accurate information is the expectation they're going to use it to deliberate with one another. Yes, that's right. The Enlightenment and, Project, right? Yes, and I think that uh, people today often confuse that project with technocracy. Mm -hmm. That yeah. people will argue that they're defending the Enlightenment Project by arguing that a technocrat is infallible rather than defending it by debating the technocrat. Yeah, and I mean, this does, though, uh, you know, point something to something that I've sort of written about, that, that in the absence of being able to, you know, exert control, right, in the absence of being able to exert in uh, certainty at an individual level through democratic uh, processes, um, even those people who would support those processes normally um, become desperate for any kind of control and certainty. Um, so they look to uh, other forms of authority, uh, other forms of government, other forms of authoritarianism, whether or not it's uh, a dictator making decisions or whether or not it's a technocrat making decisions, um, because that desire for control and certainty is so powerful. Um, and I think it's it's been lost, I think, on a lot of. Um, on the part of a lot of political movements, but especially on the left, um, that there is needs to be this. <laughs> there needs to be um, a a response to that desire. You need to create that certainty. You need to create that control. And um, for whatever reason, the left especially seems to be flummoxed um, about that particular um, uh, motive. Well, I would. I mean, I think. I think that um, on the right, you see much more of a consensus to go <clears throat> one particular route. You do. Yeah. On the absolutely. left, you see a profound split between yep. progressives and populists <clears throat> that is only widening. Now, in all of this, though, we've got governments in Canada flailing about trying to do something about this um, pandemic and deliver to their populace different degrees of certainty. And you can see that the BC government is very much using a performance of technocratic certainty. The Minister of Health is stepping out of the limelight to give it to this senior appointed civil servant. 
Um, we see the premier making very few direct interventions. And again, in this performance of saying that uh, he trusts landlords, he trusts business owners, that's, there's, a, there's a clear rhetoric of reassurance there. Mm-hmm. And I think in, in Ontario and Quebec, we see a very different rhetoric of reassurance. We see a populist rhetoric of reassurance of François Legault and Doug Ford assuring people very directly that they personally have their back, that they're shooting from the hip and doing so for regular folks. But a lot of us are, of course, fascinated to see what is going on in Alberta. Mm. How is Jason Kenney, what's his performance, and is it working as well as John Horgan's or Francois Legault's is? Those guys are are on the rise because his performance looks incoherent from across the border. How is he doing at making people feel reassured, and what's his tactic? That's a really good question. I'm not sure, um, to be honest. Um, and I think um, that's because this particular crisis um, probably is at odds uh, with a whole bunch of things within the UCP makeup. Um, you know, within the UCP makeup, you see things like. Uh, um, there are strands of libertarianism, but there are strands of extreme authoritarianism, right? Um, there are definitely strands of environmentalism, uh, anti-environmentalism, and also anti-expertise and post-truth um, beliefs. And yet we're also at a time when um, the Canadian public as a whole, I think, in, even in Alberta, um, is wanting that sort of scientific certainty and scientific direction. So I think what we're seeing in Kenny's performance um, is um, an uncertainty that is born from these conflicting um, strains within the UCP and how it may or may not mesh with what Canadians as a whole um, and even Albertans want. I think that's what we're seeing right now in Alberta. Yes, it. I mean, uh, whatever one thinks of Jason Kenney, I've always associated his public performance with one of confidence and clarity. I always knew yeah. what he was getting at until uh, the pandemic showed up. And um, it seems like he's um, he's struggling to uh, to deliver that. Um, any, um, when you're sort of looking at, um, this in a more global context, um, what are some of the big, um, sort of changes or trends that you see the pandemic as, um, either shifting or accelerating or arresting? Well, I think it goes back to what we were talking about previously in some ways. What will this pandemic bring from a political standpoint? Will it bring um, popularity and a desire for more certainty through um, dictatorship? Or will it bring a demand for more certainty and control through technocracy? 
Um, I think probably one of those two possibilities um, are, are in play. Um, I, I don't think we necessarily see a return to normal. Um, I do wonder as well about um, if this particular pandemic is going to exhaust the public to the point that they will not want to focus on what is the larger issue, uh, which is climate change and addressing that particular issue. Are we going to reach such a point of um, fear um, and exhaustion that we no longer want to deal with yet another uh, disaster, this one much bigger, um, that is looming just right around the corner. Will we sort of want to go back to, you know, want to believe that we've received this respite um, and uh, kind of ignore everything else? And then we should also be worried about the potential for a baby boom um, during this period as well. Um, you know, one of the things we do not need right now is more population. Um, and yet the conditions um, might very well be set for uh, a baby boom as a result of the pandemic. So I'm going to be very interested to see how that plays out, too, because that could have negative implications. That, that had not occurred to me, and you're, you're absolutely right, that um, we have the, the material conditions in terms of the state of the healthcare system, everything lining up for that. I noticed uh, a couple of days ago that uh, Elizabeth May did attempt to raise the question of climate change and ask that those questions about learning lessons from state mm -hmm. response, social solidarity, things like that. Of course, you know, I became aware of it because uh, members of the Alberta legislature were stating that it was a death threat and that she yeah. had stated she wanted every person in Alberta to die, um, which is a difficult exegesis to come to from her remarks. But um, but this uh, is the time we live in. <laughs> right. Right. So. Um, so, yes, yeah, certainly I think we see. um uh, we see that coming from Alberta, but in a sense, that's because of the interlocking crises, the fact that oil money is drying up because of the pandemic. And uh, um, great efforts are being made to uh, uh, to keep that show on the road. Anyway, we're um, we're sort of approaching the end of our, our half hour. I, I want to express uh, my appreciation for you uh, being on the first episode of the new show. Uh, any closing thoughts you want to leave us with on the state of um, democratic discourse and uh, COVID-19? No, I, I guess I just wonder what will be on the other side of this, right? Will it be the Roaring Twenties, for example, right, where everyone wants to sort of express some kind of relief, right, uh, that this is over, even though it clearly will not be? Um, or will we take this moment to self-reflect um, on how we got here in the first place? Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure if we will uh, do the, the latter thing. Um, I'm, I'm really not. Um, will we actually stop and think about uh, some of the fundamental governmental and uh, economic decisions that have led to this crisis? Or will we simply want to try to go back to some kind of normalcy um, or what is perceived as normalcy, even though that's not the right thing for us to do? 
I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I'm worried about what the answer to that question might be, as I'm sure you are as well, Stuart. Um, but I think we'll only be able to find out um, in the months and years that follow uh, this conversation. Yes. Well, on that note, um, we'll uh, we'll have you back in the months and years during this conversation, and um, uh, we shall talk to you later in the spring. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Stuart. This has been another broadcast of Missing Peter Zosky in Prince George on CFUR 88.7, co-sponsored by Los Altos Institute, L-O-S-A-L-T-O-S dot C-A.